Hello, friends. Welcome back to Modern Wisdom. My guest today is James Lindsay. You might recognize him from Joe Rogan last year and the Grievance Studies dog park debacle, which uh, he was one of the co-authors, along with Peter Bogosian and Helen Pluckrose. But today he's sitting down in his own and we're talking about the foundations of wokeness. I, as you will have done as well, have been exposed to quite a lot of sort of social justice warrior bashing over the last few years. Um, and I was kind of getting a bit bored of just seeing Sam Harris destroys social justice warrior on YouTube. And I kind of actually wanted to understand where this movement comes from. I wanted to understand postmodernism and social justice and everything else to do with this particular subject area. I want to have a concrete foundational understanding of exactly what's going on, because how can I have a view on it if I don't understand its origins? So fortunately, it turns out that James is not only like patient zero for understanding this stuff, but he's also writing a book on it, which will be out next year. So he was the perfect man for the job. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've worn Whoop for over four years now, since way before they were a partner on the show, and it is the only wearable I have ever stuck with because it's the best. It is so innocuous, you do not remember that you've got it on, and yet it tracks absolutely everything 24-7 via something from your wrist. It tracks your heart rate, it tracks your sleep, your recovery, all of your workouts, your resting heart rate, your heart rate variability, how much you're breathing throughout the night. It puts all of this into an app and spits out very simple, easy to understand, and fantastic fantastically usable data. It's phenomenal. I am a massive, massive fan of Whoop, and that is why it's the only wearable that I've ever stuck with. You can join for free, pay nothing for the brand new Whoop 4.0 strap, plus you get your first month for free, and there's a 30-day money-back guarantee, so you can buy it for free, try it for free, and if you do not like it, after 29 days, they will give you your money back. Head to join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. That's join.whoop.com slash modern wisdom. This episode is brought to you by AG1. AG1 is a daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. Even with the best diet in the world, it is hard to make sure that you get everything that you need. And through a science-driven formulation, vitamins, probiotics, and whole food sourced nutrients, AG1 delivers comprehensive support for the brain, gut, and immune system. This is why Joe Rogan and Lex Friedman and Dr. Andrew Huberman and Tim Ferriss are all massive fans. They have tried every other product out there like I have, and this is by far the best one available. Since 2010, AG1 have improved the formula 52 times in the pursuit of making the best foundational nutrition supplement possible through high quality ingredients and rigorous standards. Also, there's a 90 day money back guarantee, so you can buy it and try it for 89 days. And if you don't like it, they'll just give you your money back. Head to drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom for that 90-day money-back guarantee, a year's free supply, vitamin D, five free travel packs, and more. That's drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom. Please welcome James Lindsay. Somebody will get upset that I've said this, but the truly the whole thing is, is steeped in like psychoanalyzing people you disagree with and paranoia. And it's all about systems of power and the way that those influence everything so that nothing can be authentic. And it's all kind of whining and complaining and very pessimistic, very cynical. Um, it has that characteristic where you've probably run into this where you know it's wrong and it's not hard to see how it's wrong. It's easy to see how it's persuasive, though. And it's going to take you a lot of work to explain why it's wrong in a satisfactory way. And it's really a negative place to be. I don't think it's fun to do this <laughs> at all. Are you the the sort of the guy that's had to walk over hot coals to try and retrieve something of value from the other side a little bit? Sort of it's you that's that's suffering this this discomfort. That is a good way to put it. Yeah, in a sense, that's I feel like that's kind of what I'm doing now is I, I really want to understand the mindset and understand it in a way that's 
faithful to what it actually is that portrays it accurately, but also in a way that I, I can communicate that back to other people in plain language so that they can see it for what it is without having to go read um, tons of it. And it is like walking back and forth, back and forth, <laughs> back and forth across the coals, knowing every single time that it's it's going to be hot again. It's <laughs> terrible. Um I get it. Um, So, I mean, the listeners, you will have joined us. There's usually an intro, but me and James had too much to talk about. So welcome back. I'm joined by James Lindsay, and we are talking about an awful lot of different interesting things today, principally critical theory. That's principally what I've been thinking about, yeah. What What is critical theory? I don't know what critical theory is. Critical theory is a way to view the world. Um the long and short of it is that it's a way to view the world that sees the world in terms of some, and there are multiple critical theories. There are many critical theories. Um, At its very bottom, it's a way to view the world where everything relevant in terms at least of social relations has to do with power dynamics that are in society between some group with power and other groups who don't have as much power. Um, and the object of critical theory is to say that the groups that have power carry certain assumptions and biases and the likes, and they bake that into the systems that they create without realizing that they're doing it. So the critical theorist's job is to expose those biases and uncover those assumptions so that they can be critiqued and reexamined and usually discarded, dismantled, subverted, or otherwise overthrown. Mm -hmm. So you would have this in the Marxist sense, the power group would either be the capitalists or the bourgeoisie, which would be the property holding class. And they, you know, in a kind of a very direct sense, control the working class and kind of control how they're supposed to think and set the fashion and set the tone of what high society is supposed to look like or how the how businesses are supposed to be operated and they exploit the working class, which would be the oppressed group. Um, critical theory uh, grew out of that mindset in what uh, Institute for social research that was set up in Frankfurt, Germany in the twenties that's now called the Frankfurt school. Um, and they actually following off of the Italian communist philosopher, Antonio Gramsci, realized that, you know, Marx predicted there would be this revolution, the proletariat would rise up and overthrow the capitalists and the bourgeoisie. And this didn't happen. And they wanted to know why. So Antonio Gramsci came up with this idea that's called cultural hegemony. And that's the idea that the powerful classes of society set the way that everybody's supposed to think and everybody else buys into that so they won't go against it. And then the Frankfurt School kind of ran with this idea and started saying that things like liberalism and Western civilization themselves bake in the assumptions of their creators and make it so that the people who have power, which would mostly be white Western men who are straight and so on, have both explicitly and inadvertently cooked up systems of power so that they benefit themselves and exclude those that they don't want to take to have the power because the power is a zero-sum object in this worldview. So um, critical theory is, in that sense, a way of looking at the world that sees the world that way and that essentially tries to pick at whatever the system is Mm. so as to tear apart the hidden assumptions and biases, that's the most charitable way to put it. That's what they say that they're doing is tearing apart the hidden assumptions and biases to make the system more fair, or as they phrased it in the Frankfurt School, uh, to make it into an ideal democracy um, where nobody is actually uh, has their voice or their opportunity or whatever shortchanged. So (laughs) that's a very long definition. Um, But at face value, that sounds, critical theory sounds... Pretty good. Uh, it, it it's definitely something that, when used appropriately, a critical method at least can be very very useful. And in fact, um, the Enlightenment tradition, which has brought us you know pretty much all of modernity, like the ability to Skype and have good microphones and things, <laughs> um, the Enlightenment tradition 
could very easily be seen as an appropriate use of critical methods. It started to question the authority of, say, the church. And it started to say, let's defer to an external authority, uh, the, essentially the, uh, the way nature works, to answer our questions about the world. And let's try to appeal to reason and logic and uh, evidence as much as we can in making our decisions. And so it started to create this very different way to see the world that presented a very useful skepticism against the previous kind of mythological and uh, episcopate type and monarchical type mindsets where you had these literally powerful individuals mm -hmm. who then decided, you know, either the interpretation of scripture or the organization of society or whatever. And whatever their fancy was, was how it went. You know, mm -hmm. the, the law was what the king said the law was or, you know, the scripture is at the pope. Interprets it, interprets it to say, and so on. So, yes, um, the issue is that a critical theory, there, the, so this, this philosopher, um, Max Horkheimer, in the Frankfurt School, laid out the difference between what's technically called a critical theory and what he called a traditional theory, both of which exist within a broader kind of critical thinking tradition that we would think of. And the point of a traditional theory is to understand a thing. It's just to understand it. The point of a critical theory is to understand how it goes wrong, and in particular how it goes wrong according to some normative vision, which means a moral structure. And how to qualify as a critical theory, it must be explanatory about how it is particularly an unjust thing. So it's looking for injustices in the system and nothing else. No attempt to understand how the thing works necessarily or why those injustices happen to be what they are or something like this. And it must fit the vision of the uh, social engineers who are have decided what justice looks like when they look for these injustices. And it must be applicable by activists. And so it is in a sense, a way of putting the cart ahead of the horse where, you know, our, our best knowledge should lead our decision making rather than what we want to be true leading our approach to figuring out knowledge. Yeah. So, yes, the best way that I can think of it is to actually because I don't want to say that critical theory is useless because it's not. Um, it's odd that it gets applied to so much given that it's mostly a literary thing but um i try to say that it's like a really strong industrial solvent um it has applications it has uses but man you're not going to spread it everywhere <laughs> you're not going to give it to kids you're not going to just you know dump it on everything you see mm -hmm. um it's one of those things that it certainly has beneficial and appropriate uses uh, we should be looking for those biases and those unconsidered assumptions, mm -hmm. but we should also do so responsibly, not with an effort only to pick at how something goes wrong. You must also understand why the system, the situation is the way that it is. Yeah. I mean, that, that to me is one of the most enjoyable parts of life for me as someone who enjoys sense-making you know, I, I I do this podcast and I try and I try and uncover why things are the way they are. The, the tagline to modern wisdom is uh, understand yourself and the world around you. Like, you know, yeah, I, yeah. I like doing it. It's cool. There's nothing. There's no better satisfaction for me than joining together two different points with something and you being like, "Fuck, that's why. Yeah. That's why that's that thing." And like, and that's yeah. inherently enjoyable. But yeah, when it's got this. It's the it's the same uh, central core, but it's just facing in the complete different direction. And this direction, yeah. this direction is, is like you say, it's trying to work out who has the power and why. Right. Why is that the case? So, how do we? Because this is something that I, you are, I think, probably. Let me give you. Let me give you an example real quick before we go into that. So it's really clear what the difference between a critical mindset and another, you know. A, I'm just even going to say normal mindset is, although that would be torn apart by critical theory. Um, so imagine like 
I just want to use the, an example of, say, like an airplane in the seats on an airplane. Everybody has a bad time with the seats on airplanes, except for very small women, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so the seats on airplanes tend to be narrow. They tend to be small. Your knees are getting banged up against the person in front of you, so on and so forth. Nobody's really happy about this. Now, a traditional theory would try – you know, you have the people who designed the aircraft, and they tr- they had to make decisions as to how they're going to arrange the seats. Obviously, they want to put as many seats in the plane as they can given the size of the aircraft and its weight specifications and so on, because that optimizes for the number of people who can travel and the amount of money that they can make with the plane. So those considerations would all fall under traditional theory. A critical theory would say, well, these seats are really uncomfortable. And so if we were to take a lens, for example, that looks from what's now called fat studies, it would say, and obviously, you know, everybody knows of the issue of really overweight people on airplanes because the seats are what they are and it makes the next person over uncomfortable and sometimes they need two seats and, you know, all of the different things. And so the critical perspective there would say, well, the plane was designed by people who are generally thin or of average size, not overweight. And so they have a blind spot to what it's like to be an overweight person. And that is them exercising a power called thin normativity that sees thinness as normal and overweightness as abnormal. And therefore, there is a power relation here between average sized or thin people And they're exerting it on the oppressed, overweight people who are forced to be uncomfortable on aircraft because they um, the the people designing the airplane don't care that. And ultimately, that's what it is, that they don't care or they want fat people not to exist or they want fat people to lose weight or whatever it happens to be. Um, So that's the difference between the way a critical mindset, the critical mindset is merely going to look at the size of the chairs and start complaining. The traditional mindset or a what Horkheimer called a traditional theory would say, why were the plane seats designed like this in the first place? And what were the reasons that went into that? Why was this considered to be the best possible decision over maybe a few iterations of, well, they used to be more narrow or they used to be wider and we figured out we could get more people. And there's there's the one that tries to understand why the seats are the way they are. And then there's the one that says this sucks and I want to complain about it. So. Whether it's informed or not, whether they there's any attention given to the real reasons that things are the way they are. So that's kind of the difference between a critical mindset versus a more comprehensive way to look at things. It's a solvent. It's an, it tears apart what's there without necessarily even knowing what it is. Yeah, I understand. So that's that's actually I wanted to ask the question, um, where did social justice come from? And can you give us the academic underpinnings of it, which it sounds like you're really delving into. And I think as well for a lot of the listeners, I've had Douglas Murray on, Andrew Doyle's been on, Constantin Kissin's coming on soon and blah, blah, blah. Oh, great. So you got all of these people who are talking about the manifestations of that. But what we're talking about here and what's my my particular selfish um, love of things why is this the way it is? So I want to get into that. But the, the what you've come across there to me, I think, is quite archetypal in terms of what appears to be happening overall with social justice at the moment. And this is that there is a normal distribution of something, anything, whether it be gender expression, whether it be performance at school based on race or um, particular job choices based on uh, in relation to gender or whatever it might be. There is particular normal distribution. And it seems to me that one of the hallmarks of social justice at the moment in its malignant form, because, you know, social justice in its purest form, I don't know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, before this term sort of began to get hijacked, is actually a really, a really, really good thing. But um, yeah, in its current form, it appears to be there are some people who have an extreme experience of the world. We need to accommodate them ahead of the bulk of people that fall within the normal distribution. Am I, am I a million miles away there or is that, is that, is that what's happening a lot? You're pretty close to the bullseye. Um, there's a a number of interesting things that can be said about that if you want. Uh, but you are very close to the inaccurate, inaccurate description of what's going on. Um, one of the things that can be said about that is that what you are. So another kind of useful example here is, is what's 
known as the social model of disability. So within disability studies, which has also become one of these kind of social justice bastions to the dismay of lots of disabled people who reach out to me all the time and say it's wrecking their lives. Uh, there's this model that came about, I think in the eighties, it may have been a little earlier and it was okay at the beginning. Disability studies is really an interesting case because it's one where it's really easy to see the point being made that's good and then how it falls off the rails. Um, the social model of disability basically said, okay, so some people are disabled and it's important not just to kind of say suck it up buttercup and figure it out, but rather society should make reasonable accommodations for disabled people. So there should be, you know, the the thing on the sidewalk, the ridged area for the blind people and the traffic signal should make noise and, and there should be outside of doors. ramps and, and elevators and things. Yes, to, to the degree that bathrooms and so on. And so the social model of disability is exactly what you're just saying. There are these people who fall outside of the normal range of human experience. And there is some expectation that a society that's well off enough is doing the right thing by making them have more accessibility to that society. So there's the so it shouldn't all be on the disabled person to deal with the world. If the society is, I mean, they usually don't say it so explicitly, but the reality is if the society is well off enough to be able to afford it, there is a, uh, there is a reason to believe that we have a social obligation to, uh, make things more accessible. Yes. To pay for those ramps, to pay for that, to pay taxes, to pay for the thing on the sidewalk and at the light, uh, the, so that the, the crossing light makes noises and things like that. Mm -hmm. So this seems perfectly reasonable because it is perfectly reasonable. And then when it starts becoming, as you were distinguishing between this, so that, that is social justice that is making in the liberal sense, society more just for people on the outside end of the spectrum at very some, but very little cost to people in the middle. But then where it starts to become the malignant form is when you start getting into ideas like, and these are, these are valid. These are things that are actually happening that uh, deafness, for example, is an identity. So you are a deaf person, not a person who happens to be deaf. And so when there's medical advances in, say, hearing aid technology that can give deaf people the ability to hear, that can be reinterpreted as a uh, medicalization of deafness or a desire for deafness not to exist, which then can be further interpreted into a will to genocide against deaf people. So oh the wish God. that that no one would be deaf because being deaf is – a disability is interpreted when you go too far down this rabbit hole as wishing there were no deaf people in the other meaning of the term as in like they were all their deafness was all it's so hard to say but they literally equated to a genocide but is this not the they, same it would this not be the same as uh when was the when did the polio jab come out it was about a hundred years ago is that right yeah 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 it would be the same as a hundred years ago the polio jab being released and everyone's saying, right, so you're saying that all of these people that have got polio, that are like walking around on crutches, you're saying you're saying that they shouldn't exist. And you're like, well, I mean, by most people's measures of welfare, they would be having a fuller human experience if they weren't like that. And given the choice between the two, the majority of people, if they were laid out in front of them, would also choose sort of full normal human function where is the problem here but as the you say it's an attack on it's yeah. an attack on the identity or at least that's what it's so that's the thing it's a, it becomes an attack on the identity which then it gets further translated into an attack on the people who carry that identity mm -hmm. and you can start to see how this isn't really a good way to think about things mm -hmm. um and then yeah, so so people start to we will get up to the listeners. We will get onto the academic underpinnings of social justice in a second, I promise. But this is cool and interesting. Um, you can increasingly slice this I am out on the fringes thing, right? Uh -huh. Is that what's happening whereby people are in making something which isn't perhaps that much of a disadvantage, more of a, uh, a exaggerating that? So, um, um. For instance, yeah, I think so. For instance, Douglas, I don't know whether you ever heard the interview that I did with him, but I asked him, uh, what chapters would you have put in the book in The Madness of Crowds um, that you didn't? And he said that one of them was mental health 
because he said mm-hmm. that uh, as far as he was concerned, there are real people who have real problems with mental health, but waving your hand in the air and saying, I have mental health problems, like it's some sort of um, some calling card, some sort of marker of, of distinguishment or whatever it might be, some sort of sympathy card. Uh, and the other one was green. Um, so those were the two, those were the two that he was, he was considering adding in. But yeah, I'm wondering how that, um, you have some people who have, who genuinely are out on that, the tail end of that distribution of normalness and who require social justice to allow them to be a part of society because we have to accommodate for them because that's the good thing to do within a good society. But then there are people who want accommodations made for them because why? Because they want some attention? <laughs> it's really difficult to say why, but somehow along the way, um, this all became very identity focused. They call it an identity first mindset. In, in other words, it adopted identity politics. Mm-hmm. This maybe is attributable to the black feminists um, and that black feminism is a type of feminism. It, I'm not saying feminists who happen to be black. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I understand. As it turns out... Um, Black feminism is kind of grew out of like a, the, the combination of the black power movement and, and feminist feminism, I think. And it had that as an ethos at any rate. And so they very much so Kimberly Crenshaw and Bell Hooks in the 1980s, two very famous names uh, among among uh, people who are paying attention to any of this now. They both were very adamant that black identity should be first. It should be uh, I am a black person or I am a black woman rather than I am a person who happens to be black. So and, and the Kimberly Crenshaw at least was explicit about it. The purpose is so we can do identity politics. Um, what do you mean? So, so step we away- can do so we can do identity politics. What's that mean? So the, the goal was to put identity first so that you can use that matter of identity as a lever to achieve political ends. Um and it was explicitly written in, for example, Crenshaw's Mapping the Margins that identity politics was the goal. So there was this switch sometime in the 80s and 90s to uh, the mainstream, even academic thought, becoming very identity politics oriented. And so that started causing this identity centric kind of thinking that that you're kind of hinting at or asking about Um One other thing to say about the normal distribution, by the way, it's worth mentioning, but we won't go down the rabbit hole, is that there's a trick being played here that everybody should be aware of, which is that the word normal means two things at once. There's normal in the sense of, you know, near the middle of the normal distribution Mm -hmm. and then common everyday, the regular, the expected thing, you know, typical. Yeah. And then there's there's normal in the sense of normative which means that it has some moral valence. It's the good thing. Mm-hmm. And so what they're doing is they're mixing those two meanings at the same time. So they are actually waging a war against the normal because they feel like they're, when you expect, if lots of people are in are, are, are normal and then you have some abnormal people, the belief is that there's an automatic, you can't have a neutral understanding of normal and abnormal. There's always normal, good, abnormal, bad. And so they're mixing the moral with the uh, just descriptive understandings of those two terms. And they play on that double meaning very intentionally uh, and more or less constantly. So um, when you talked about the normal distribution and then there's the people on the ends who would be abnormal, um, that's certainly what's going on. And if if you want to know, we can segue toward the academic roots there by saying that that actually comes from um, the understanding of uh, power, knowledge, and language that would have come from the French postmodernists, specifically Michel Foucault, and uh, who was very concerned with the exclusion of the abnormal and the way that power does that. And then uh, Jacques Derrida, who was very concerned with how language such as words in language appear in pairs that give give the hierarchical pairs, in fact, that give the words a meaning. Normal only means something because there's abnormal to compare it to. And Derrida's one of Derrida's hypotheses is that one of those words has a positive valence and one of those words has a negative valence. And then again, the confusion between descriptive and uh, moral is, understanding of those murky, terms. murky waters. Am I right in thinking that your actual, your, have you got a PhD in maths? Is that right? That's right. That is correct. PhD in mathematics, 
and mm-hmm. you're now swimming in these waters. Yeah, it's actually really interesting. Most of the people that I'm aware of that are being the other than than Helen, who's Helen Pluckrose, who's probably the most astute uh, mind on on all of this in terms of total like wide view and clarity. Um, most of the people working in in this that are critical of it are coming out of uh, things like mathematics and science. So and, that I've decided to start learning. I I don't know. <laughs> I think that I mean you see certainly mathematicians well maybe less mathematicians but uh, certainly scientists um, are if they're not on board with it are likely to be very prone to wanting to to I mean it's it's very irritating to them to see these abuses of logic and empiricism and uh, epistemology. I was going to say and yeah so, does it, is it is it partly because you guys are one of the bastions of sort of true academia. Uh, there's, you know, a lot of the listeners will be familiar with how many times someone has said on this podcast, if the subject has the word science in it, it's not a true science. Or if it's got studies in it, it tends to not be a true science because nothing, physics doesn't have the word science in it. Chemistry doesn't have the word. It's only a lot of um, slightly more spurious topics uh, and subject areas which need to reaffirm their scientificness by putting science in the title. And I wonder whether... That's probably right. <clears throat> I wonder whether this is um, the old guard dusting off their sort of padded, their uh, elbow-padded jackets and, and putting the chalkboards mm-hmm. down to, like, come out and, and, and have a crack at, at sort of protecting ah. true academia. So, yeah, I actually do think... The more I think about it, the more I am convinced... So that I maybe am deluding myself or I'm getting more right. I don't know. But the more I think about it, the more I'm convinced that most of what is happening regarding all this very academic side of the culture war, the social justice and the scholarship and all of this postmodern stuff and all ultimately comes down to a gigantic culture war between the sciences and the humanities. that has been raging since like the 30s. Um, I really kind of think that's what's going on. It's quite territorial. It's a turf war, yeah. So <laughs> I think what happened was it became undeniable that the sciences were getting much better answers about the world than uh, as the harder the sciences got, the more rigorous they got, the better the answers they were getting. Instead of this, you know, kind of armchair philosophy sort of thing you used to be able to do, and you were a natural philosopher, and so on and so forth. And you could just kind of like if you look at the advancement, even in like psychology from Freud which is all kind of unfalsifiable and he's just sitting back thinking about stuff and writing it down to, you know, what we expect now, which is very uh, deeply when it's done well, very deeply rigorous and experimental and experimental control controls and statistics. And you can't just, you know, well, everybody wants to have sex with their mother and then that results (laughs) in, you know, you can't do that anymore. And so you've had this like hardening up. And so you had the, the side of, of, scholarship that was more of the well i want to sit back in my armchair and talk talk about issues you had the well let's go get our hands dirty with the data the two sides of it and they science just keeps stealing ground from the other ones and i think they're bitter about it and have been bitter about it for decades and want their ground back you see it really strongly with analytic philosophers and moral philosophers especially um where they feel like science is encroaching upon you know, they, they, they're they like the highest end of philosophy and the science is encroaching on their turf and they're very hostile about it and get really worked up. Um, but the French postmodernists, for example, were extraordinarily uh, – Foucault in particular is extraordinarily pessimistic about science. His whole shtick was, well, he, he was like, well, I'm a philosopher, I'm a historiographer, and I'm going to tell you about the history of how science was – was wrong <laughs> and science was wrong here. And then science thought it was better and science was wrong again. And you know, it's just this whole kind of, well, science can't do anything right. And I actually think that's how Foucault took off is these literary theory departments that were trying to do a lot of social activism realized that Foucault gave them a tool mm. to um, point out how science is more a longstanding string of failures with gigantic moral consequences than it is a rigorous and legitimate method. So it gave people a way to criticize science without having to do science. 
allowing that turf war to just flare up at like the highest level. And so who's going to come out and defend it? Scientists. Yeah. And that's what you saw in the, in the 90s um, with what's called the science wars now. You had like Gross and Levitt and Sokol and oh, I can't think of all the names up against these mostly uh, French postmodern philosophers and just this really heated culture war within the academy weight was weight was, was raging between them and and i think ultimately the science side won the battle but maybe lost the war because the theorists went underground and have now come back with a vengeance with seven seven arms and eight heads and and, and the breathing fire and all this sort of stuff Somebody recently that I was talking to, I can't think of who it was, so I apologize to whoever that was, uh, said it's like a hydra. Mm. And I think that's a really good analogy. You cut off a head and it grows two more. And it seems to be a hydra that doesn't know it's a hydra, which is, is really a I peculiar think it's just a fluffy bunny or something like that. Um, so we've got but now about- you actually do have, by the way, a touch of how these ideas came to be what they are, is you had these philosopher – well, I mean – to call people like Foucault a philosopher is a really tough stretch of the word. He wasn't considered that by his contemporaries. His legacy in France isn't very good. Um, same with Derrida. Uh, but you had these, ultimately, these people that were structuralists and became very, uh, you know, it's a very strange branch of philosophy that then um, got tied in with German idealism, with what the Frankfurt School really was coming from. And then got really pessimistic and cynical and just started uh, doing their strange thing. And it eventually caught on. I have guesses as to why, but I get it. Let's, let's take it from, we've got about 20 minutes or so. James, can you try and take us through a journey? Let's imagine that we're at, is it Epcot at Disneyland or whatever it might be. And we're going to go on a little roller coaster and we're going to sit in the roller coaster. And this is, Social justice from beginning until now, and we're going to sit in there. So, where are we? Where are we going first? Where's the roller coaster take us first? Uh, Hell's Kitchen, New York City, <laughs> um, early 1900s or late 1800s, with a guy named. I mean, so the term I think originated in the 1820s or 40s, but I don't know exactly what it referred to. I haven't gone that far back. I'm not going to talk about Marx, although Marx is going to be very influential. Um, I'm going to try to direct it to a number of streams. But the word social justice gained a lot of its relevance, actually, with a Baptist minister in Hell's Kitchen named Walter Rauschenbusch, who invented what was called the social gospel. And if you go back and read the social gospel, it looks a lot like the social justice of today. And we're going to leave that as a seed, except that uh, Rauschenbusch ended up working with people um, in on your side of the pond. Uh, he came over to London and uh, got in cahoots with the um, Fabian Society early on, which is a far left organization, uh, eventually spawned the London School of Economics, which is a socialist school of economics and so on, uh, think tank now. And so he came back to Hell's Kitchen. And he said, so social justice started to become a thing within a within the Baptist uh, religion, of all things, uh, which is very conservative now, which is kind of funny. So turns out Rauschenbusch was Richard Rorty, who's one of the American postmodern philosophers. Rauschenbusch was uh, his grandfather. So that's kind of like track number one. Mm-hmm. Then I want to take you to Frankfurt. And by Frankfurt, I actually mean Frankfurt kind of and mostly New York City because the Frankfurt School was mostly in New York City uh, because of the Nazis. So they had to leave Germany because um, that's when that was going on. Uh, it started in the late 20s. And so not very long later, most of them relocated to um, New York City. So you're talking about Max Horkheimer, Theodore Adorno, um, Herbert Marcuse. Um, eventually, a decade later, two decades later, uh, Jürgen Habermas, Walter Benjamin was early on, allegedly uh, Adorno stole most of Benjamin's ideas. And so these guys laid, as we talked at the beginning of the conversation, they laid the groundwork for this critical theory idea. And they ended up especially coming off of um, Marcuse, the groundwork for what became known as a social movement, known as the new left. And the new left is what was responsible for all of the, when you talk about 
the crazy politics of the 1960s and all of the riots, especially around 1968, the new left was really what was responsible for that. So these guys' vision for how society should be organized and ultimately viewed through critical theory in order to overthrow the hidden oppressions and injustices of liberalism and Western civilization became a huge like political movement on the far left. Uh, it defined the radical left. So all your radical feminists, your black power movement, you know, Malcolm X, et cetera, all of that would have had in some sense either direct or indirect ties to the thinking of the new left. And so that kind of whole far left radical activist morass, which was actually quite violent at the time in the 60s, the, you know, you, you got the May 1968, what was it, in France and Paris, you got whatever happened in the U.S., some of the riots got pretty intense, Berkeley and so on. And so that would be kind of like the second stop on our little roller coaster is that philosophy there. So especially, like I said, Marcuse, who is extremely influential with these these kids. Uh, he, I actually saw an interview with him from the 70s where he was a bit dismayed with how people were taking up his ideas and being uncareful with them and running kind of roughshod and wild with them. I was going to say, just, uh, just so that we can we can kind of have a, um, what would you say, one of those uh, dipsticks, like a PhD level dipstick of the intensity of how much this is becoming malignant. Because, you know, we hear these things. We've got Malcolm X. We've got, these are just, in most people's eyes, there's some extreme tactics that are being used, but they're just causes. There's few people that would yeah. look back and see these and say, that shouldn't have happened. So where does this start right. to, to sort of lose its way as well? So, um, <coughs> yeah, we'll get there. So I oh, want to actually cool. dip back to Paris for, for a minute cool. because around that same time, around six, the sixties and early seventies is when you had the postmodernists really coming to, to bear. Now the context in Europe more broadly, of course, also was the collapse of colonialism at this point. So you had the post-colonial people really starting to speak out about how bad empire was and, um, the damage that that did. And it's kind of set. Now it became very actually central to, to European new left thinking. Um, whereas at roughly the same time in the U S it started shifting toward anti Vietnam war sentiment. And so they kind of had two different paths going on there. So the postmodernists arose in the European context of being French and highly influenced by some of the German idealists, uh, philosophers. And so they, um, they were at the Sorbonne at, I think the university of Paris in Paris anyway, and they all kind of worked together and studied together. And you have this kind of whole little group of, you know, Derrida, Foucault, et cetera. They didn't always agree. Sometimes they didn't like each other. Sometimes they did, but there was this sort of, um, occasionally Marxist, occasionally Leninist, occasionally Maoist, occasionally not that occasionally communist, occasionally anti-communist, but very far left there is no stable knowledge. We got to, because of the post-colonial context, we have to look at different cultures. There's no way to compare a culture. We've been doing that. That was unjust. We were saying Western culture is better. So they had to cut back from, they pull back from all of that kind of thing, very culturally relative. We can't really obtain objective truth. We think that the West is so good, but it made World War II, you know, all this death and destruction. It came up with the Atlantic slave trade became an interesting topic. All of these horrors that came out of, out of Western culture. So we can't keep saying it's so good. And postmodern theory was born. And so I think postmodern theory was actually not really it was it was an offshoot of and not really in line with the rest of what the so-called new left was doing. And then so where did it really start? There are already problems here, but where it really started to become malignant was when those two things came back together. And that would have been in the mid and late 1980s. So through the 70s and 80s, for example, within feminism, uh, you would overwhelmingly have had. Um, radical feminists and Marxist feminists, or they're called materialist feminists, being the ones doing the analysis. And they would say, oh, well, women were a commodity under patriarchy and patriarchy and capitalism are in cahoots. And so the patriarchal capitalist system is what needs to be overthrown. And so you can kind of see this is a very radical mindset. You had people like Andrea Dworkin and all of these characters, Catherine McKinnon, who are very against pornography as a form of exploitation and violence against women. 
a lot of this dipped in and out of the liberal feminist stuff, but the radicals were separate and more often separatist and, and intense in their, their, their approach. This, of course, is also, by the way, all along stimulating a backlash from the conservatives who are afraid that this is the end of society and the making. So, you know, something's boiling on the other side as a result of this. So that's kind of important. And eventually in the late 1980s, you had a fusion of postmodern methods into this radical left thought. And that's where I think it really started to become malignant. That's where, again, we talked about briefly before the introduction of the intention to do identity politics through postmodern methods was introduced. That's where postmodernism and liberalism were simultaneously critiqued heavily uh, by these theorists. Um, but the conclusion was that postmodernism was just the, the problems with postmodernism, postmodernism has, has most of the right ideas, except that it was formulated by white Western well-off men who could afford to deconstruct everything. And so when you look at oppression, you can't deconstruct that experience. You can't deconstruct that injustice, hence the turn toward identity centrality. So you had that whole twist toward let's do identity politics and let's do it with postmodern methods. If you really wanted to stick a date stamp on it, I would tell you it was 1989 is when that happened. But really anywhere from 1984 up through 1994 is when that was developing and cooking and all of the biggest pieces and most of the groundwork was laid. And from there, it's just actually kind of concretized um, most of this happening in the United States. Now, once the postmodernism was picked up by these American philosophers, so like Kimberly Crenshaw as a legal scholar, Judith Butler as a, I guess, a philosopher or something, but the queer theorist is the best way to describe her now. Um, as it started getting picked up by all these Americans, it just took off. Um, I'm not entirely sure why it took off, so heavily in the American Academy, whereas it was kind of poo-pooed in, Fran in France where it was originated. Mm. Nobody in the continent or in, in England was particularly interested, and it just took off in the U.S. And then, of course, our academics exported it to yours and especially to Australian ones who were also very interested in these kinds of things. The first women's studies department actually was in Sydney um, in Australia, which but that would have been more of the radical line. Um so that's how it started to change and what it changed into by 2010. And anybody who's interested will be able to read this in great detail in the book I wrote with Helen, which is due out in May called Cynical Theories. Um, by 2010 or so, it had become just the phrase that, that is probably best used is, is uh, it's hard to say this and have it be understood. It's known knowns, things that are known to be known things that people just therefore accept as being generally true. Yep. So all of the postmodern theorizing, all of the the attempts to reify certain points around identity that went into the identity politics turn in the late 80s and early 90s, and then the developments that proceeded in the next decade or so, everybody just started taking those things for granted. Well, that's true. Everybody knows that. We have decades of theory saying that that's true. There's no reason to, to say no, that, that that can't be right. We have so much scholarship now all saying that that's true. And so by 2010, they just started kind of mixing everything together in, in this sort of super intersectional uh, framework where um, solidarity and allyship became kind of core ideas that had to be paid full attention to all the time. And it started coming out of the academies and into society. Um, and when they speak about it now, it used to be this crazy highfalutin jargon that nobody understood, complicated sentences. Now it's quite clear. It's almost religious in its quality. It's, if you listen to, for example, Robin D'Angelo, who's a famous whiteness scholar, uh, it sounds very much like a um, a woman talking to children with her theory. It's comprehensible by a 10-year-old. Mm. Very straightforward, very clear, very self-assured, absolutely confident in the underlying assumptions that these systems of power are the correct way to view the world and that identity is at the core of systems of power and knowledge and who can have what in society and do what in society. Um, so that's sort of like the broad tour of how this all has come down. Um, 
largely because it tends to eat itself. Also, it tends to concentrate, you know, and get more and more virulent. Uh, anybody who kind of says, well, maybe it's a little bit not quite that extreme is that person's going to get shut down big time. Mm. Um, so this is, this is so, a really, this is a really interesting point that came up in my discussion with uh, Douglas Murray and with other people as well, which is that in these discussions, in, as we increasingly sort of polarize the opinions about any topic, um, the room for nuance, and I suppose this loops to how to have impossible conversations, which is your, your most recent mm-hmm. book. Um, the room for nuance and subtlety is 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 largely missing, and the problem is that to your own side, if you're in this quite sort of militant discussion where where you're supposed to be as aggressive or, or as convincing as possible, um, to your own side, nuance and subtlety sounds like uh, a lack of commitment to the cause, and to the other side. Mm-hmm nuance and subtlety sounds like a lack of conviction or a potential weak point in your argument. Do you think that's fair to say? Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Um, and there's been, so a little while ago, I was giving you the tour and I said um, that all along, each step along the way, the new left, the riots in 1968, the turn toward identity politics, et cetera, um, and then more recently, all the things where uh, it's become, you know, widely disseminated. I left out that this happened mostly in uh, where it got the tightest hold was in education uh, or schools of education have basically been social justice oriented since the 1980s, um, which is becoming a problem. Critical pedagogy is what it's called. And uh, it's been more or less the only approach, not even the dominant approach, the only approach to education. So if it's an education, I read that, for example, in colleges, everybody's like, oh, this was coming from the colleges. Um, what I read was that the universities actually experienced it as a student-led change. Where did the students get it? From their previous education, which was critically oriented because our colleges of education have been doing critical pedagogy since the 80s. So um, all along, though, I said that there's this right-wing backlash brewing Mm. well guess what the far left side of this interprets the far right side of this as proof that their theories are correct Mm. that society really is corrupt and society really is trying to protect its vested interests in the so-called status quo and the powerful people really are pushing back against them and they of course are going to have irrational backlashes meanwhile they double down because of the exact dynamic you just said, nuance can't be allowed because it looks like a lack of commitment or betrayal. And from the other side, it looks like, uh, you know, a weak point. And so both sides have actually pulled apart from one another, seeing the other as as I Helen and I wrote an article in 2017 that we titled this dynamic existential polarization, where both sides now actually believes if the other side gets any power whatsoever, it's an existential threat. Um, either to the planet or to our way of life or to our civil our civilizations or societies or something like this. And so that's absolutely non-negotiable. Nuance can't possibly exist in such a situation. Yeah, it's and no longer it's no longer a it's no longer a threat to just your side. It's a threat to everybody, even the people who aren't involved and who don't know it, and they're a threat to themselves as well. Right, right. And so critical theory, of course, stems out of this idea that um generally the unwashed masses don't know what's good for them. That was more or less Antonio Gramsci's underlying idea. That was what you saw. A lot of the motivation on the Frankfurt School was that um, if you leave the masses to choose things for themselves, they won't choose art and poetry. They'll choose football and beer and go into the strip club or whatever it happens yep. to be. And so people tend not to choose what's best for themselves, and they need some kind of philosopher king to be able to choose for them. The postmodernists, in particular, uh, Baudrillard and Leotard, were particularly concerned with this. So um, Baudrillard especially was that people never pick art and poetry. They're always going to pick some low-culture trash if you let them make their own choices. So they clearly don't know how to make good decisions, and everything's artificial, and everything's fake now. So um, Which is also you can kind of see right? where that, this is that, all that, that from. kind of like out-gaming or that um, increasing sort of caricaturism of what's going on. You know, if you were to look at something 20 years ago and say, oh, you think that that's vacuous? Like just 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 wait until you see what happens when Instagram arrives. Just wait until you see yeah, what right. happens when the Kardashians get on TV. Like mm-hmm. you know, it, we are able to outdo ourselves even in um, how hollow we are. 
which is yeah, yeah, almost yeah. impressive. It's yeah. Well, the left sees the 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 right. Well, I should say, I, I guess that the 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 so the left that's all into this like kind of high minded thing that doesn't trust the masses sees the right as choosing against their own interests. So the right as back, you know, the right uh, conservatives all back corporate interests and they, you know, big politics and a bunch of white men in a room and smoking jackets or whatever the hell yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the things are. And so the, and- right. And so the average conservative is backing something that's against his own interests and he just has to be informed and brought back around to the right side of thinking and then he wouldn't choose conservatives anymore whereas the conservatives are like the liberals are trying to do some damn social engineering program they call it the liberal agenda <laughs> and if they do that society is going to collapse and you can actually sit back for like two seconds and look at the dynamic and think man we're fucked <laughs> how does that stop yeah yeah uh i mean yeah I, I, I but swear. that's kind of, I think, what's going on. So, uh, <laughs> cheers or something. <laughs> You're not far wrong. Okay, so to finish up, James, put your money where your mouth is now. What does the next five to ten years look like for this dynamic? <sighs> that's so hard to answer because it depends on a lot of things. Um, I do think the next election in the U.S., a presidential election, uh, well, it's, you know, we do all of our elections, um, is going to be... Uh, a big variable in how that goes my perception. So we'll take that off the table for the moment because it's a big wild card and nobody really knows what's going to happen. And everybody's kind of scared, but nothing, it doesn't look like anything good's coming. Do you think that's going to be a keystone in terms of sort of where we go moving forward? I think it's very likely that it will be. Yeah. Um, it's, but I don't want to like also say this is the election of a lifetime because then that increases those stakes and makes everything worse. Mm. Um, I think one of the only or biggest lessons of Trump is that because um, I think Trump's a disaster uh, in general. But one of the biggest lessons you can pull out of his presidency is most stuff still works OK, even with that in the White House. So calm down about politics. Um Whoever's the president isn't nearly as important as we've been thinking for the last 20 or 30 years. But uh, as far as social justice goes right now, the dynamic I just described, I have no idea. The social justice part of it, I feel like is collapsing under its own weight, but it's at the same time rapidly institutionalizing. So I anticipate that a lot more organizations, companies, uh, legal entities, whatever they happen to be, are going to go woke as it, as it were. And that wokeness is going to end up hamstringing them. And so we'll see a lot of important institutions and less important institutions that see a lot of damage as the thing starts to collapse under its own weight, which is, I think what's happening. Um, By so collapse under it's its like, own it's weight, is, is that just sort of the inherent ridiculousness and self-contradictoriness of the situation imploded? Yes. Yes. And it's, for example, I saw the other day a uh, article that I read, this is maybe two weeks ago, about the problem of settlers of color. And so what is a settler of color? This is a black person, say, in North America, who, um, for whatever reason, they ended up there. You know, they stole indigenous land also. So this is basically a turf war for victimhood status between black and indigenous as kind of the maximum racial uh, victimhood status. Mm-hmm. And it's a clear bid that the indigenous are going to try to throw the black people under the bus by saying that they're settlers of color. So the infighting alone is going to really hobble what they're able to do. Mm-hmm. I also see that there is two, there are two things happening at once. One is good and one is bad in response to all this. A lot of people on both of those two things are waking up to what's going on. Social justice has shown its hand. A lot of people have become very interested in the problem and are studying it like I have, like Helen has. And that's going to increase tremendously. Um, And people are going to understand what it is. And when they understand what it is, they will do what they can to reject it. The bad side of that is going to be the backlash side, which is going to be a turn again toward making traditional gender roles cool, maybe a turn toward racism, uh, certainly a lot less sensitivity than we actually should have toward issues of identity. 
um, disability, a wholesale rejection like that. Sure. And there's these new movements. It's like, I guess there was like the Trump people and now those people are all like cucks or something now. Like they're not hardcore enough. Like Trump and his family are sellout liberals or something now from the far, far, far or extra alt, double alt, right? Or whatever. They have a name. <laughs> Frogs or something. Groypers, they call them. So Groypers. it's like. Is that what we're looking out Groyper. for over the next year? I doubt it. I don't think they're going to have a whole lot of steam behind them. They're a thing at the moment, but probably not much of one. But it's like the alt-right aspect is going to still continue to swell. You couldn't give them a better recruiting ground than having all this crazy stuff happening like with presidential nominees and things like that. Um, on the other hand, there is also a – this is very good – an enormous growth in the interest in liberalism and – uh, the underpinnings of how liberal societies should work and why those principles should be in place and how to defend them. Um, tremendous amount of interest. And I'm seeing that from people on the left. I'm seeing it from people who identify as centrists and people on the right. So and those people will, despite retaining tremendous disagreements politically, will be able to rise up and say, you know what, a liberal on the right and a liberal on the left have more in common than these fools on the extreme. And so they will they will probably start to pick in elections less predictably mm-hmm. and more well predictable toward whoever's being the most liberal. For example, you see this kind of broad coalition. I don't think it's going to work out, but broad coalition for candidates like Andrew Yang, who are being in, in the U.S. right now, who are being very uh, traditionally liberal. Um, whether left or right doesn't actually matter. I think you would see you see a lot of conservatives supporting him despite many of his policies or being open to his pol- his, his ideas despite his policies. Whereas um, normally you would just sit, would be you know a Democrat trying to get you know a position terrible. You're not seeing that, so you're starting to see this broader open-minded thing where people and I think it would be reflected as well if you had a very centrist Republican who's trying to push back against whatever's going on right now with the far right politics. It's the populism that's dominating. I think you'd see a lot of left wing support coming out for central center left support coming out for that. So I see this huge rebirth, like almost a renaissance of liberalism. And that's the place that I'm trying to stick myself into mm-hmm. is to encourage th- that to expose the thing that we're looking at the social justice malignant social justice thing and try to resurrect you know proper liberal principles including liberal social justice principles like you said earlier are actually really good and almost everybody short of a small fringe off on the right agree with them one of the things i've thought of as you've got towards the end of this discussion we've been talking about sort of this it's analogized to a virus and we're talking about when did it become malignant and things like that. I've got it in my head thinking about how a vaccination works. The vaccination gives you a very small dose of a potentially lethal uh, virus. And then you realize your system realizes, shit, I'm pretty vulnerable to this. I need to do something. And I wonder, I wonder how much this particular social justice movement is going to be a vaccination against something else which could have or may arise in the not-too-distant future for which we will need to be able to marshal an appropriate response. And that this situation that we have encountered recently will have been a canary in the coal mine to go, oh, you didn't you didn't know that this was a problem? Let me tell you, like this is this is this really is a a, a problem and you you gotta be ready for it. But we didn't get the smooth talking slick dyst- future dystopian overlord from like some James Bond film we didn't get him we got like native americans versus um like black settler like who's got them who who is the most underprivileged in this situation like fat studies that's who we got yeah we we, we can get the 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 owner of some huge billion dollar media conglomerate who's actually really really nefarious with it we got like people with blue hair that are unhappy that they didn't get enough hugs as a kid and yeah. i wonder i wonder whether or not that that will actually end up being in the long term whether that will end up serving us well because it'll prepare us for what's to come it's possible i think it's going to be really important that um we understand. I think that it's not centralized like the like the dangerous guy with the big money and all of that, but um, 
critical theory is a real it's it's again like we talked about it's like a, it's like an industrial grade solvent and so learning how to deal with that as a society is going to be really really important and so perhaps it's as you're suggesting best that it's in the hands of these self-defeating um oddballs uh and grievance mongers rather than you know the next hitler who's going to come out and know how to wield those tools uh to a much worse end um it's certainly a possibility uh i do think though that understanding that the potential for critical theory uh to be something that can literally dissolve a liberal or western society uh, or any society really, because it can latch on and change itself to fit anything, is is of paramount importance right now. And so, administering kind of like the the critical theory jab and mm. and giving people that vaccine, I think, is super important at the moment. Well, I'm excited. I'm looking forward to the book to come out with with Helen next year. Um, thank you so much for today, James. Where should uh, yeah. where should the listeners head if they want to keep in touch with you, find out more? I am. Probably pathologically active on Twitter, so that's the best place to look for me and reach out to me. Um, the, I'm at Conceptual James on Twitter. Uh, there should be some big things coming in the next few months, so uh, if those pan out, uh, people should be getting excited and check check me out and see what's going on. So that's the place to look for now. I'm looking forward to it. James, thank you so much. To the listeners at home, you know what to do. If you've enjoyed this episode, go and follow James. Check out How to Have Impossible Conversations and don't wait for his book with Helen, which will be coming out early next year. Like, share, subscribe, all that good stuff. You know what to do. But for now, thank you, James. Thank you. Thank you.